The wholesale price of sugar has been falling and is set to be lowered across Europe even further as a result of reforms to EU agricultural policy. An analysis article in the BMJ outlines what the policy changes might mean for health. I'm Navjoit Lada, analysis editor, and I'm joined now by Dr. Emily Aguirre, a research associate at the UKCRC Centre for Diet and Activity Research at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at the Resnick Programme at the UCLA School of Law and one of the authors of the article. Hi, Emily. Hello. Hi. Thanks Thank- for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Um, Thanks very much. Now, in your article, you talk about how there's been a lot of focus recently on public health policies to lower our consumption of sugar, but relatively little attention to other structural factors that influence consumption, like agriculture. Um, Can you set the scene for us by telling us about the common agricultural policy and how it's shaped diets? Yes, that's absolutely right. So... um the common agricultural policy, it's important to understand its original context. Um, it was started in the post-World War II era, back in 1962, and it was really a policy to address food shortage. So Europe was emerging from World War II, there was a need for energy-dense food, um, the farming sector was really hurting at that time, and so the original objectives of CAP were to create a stable, energy-dense food supply and to support farmers in doing so. Now, our our understanding of nutrition and our priorities have changed over the last 50 years, So, but the objectives of CAP have not changed along with it. It started to, it's kind of moving in that direction, but not explicitly and, um, and not in a big enough way, we believe. So CAP determines in a lot of ways the composition of the food supply and the pricing of a lot of the foods because um, at a very upstream level, it's determining the production of foods, who's getting paid what, and which farmers are really going to be getting the profitable crops, or at least it has been for the last 50 years, really. So it's really setting the scene in a big way for the foods that are entering the food supply. And so then when you start to look at a lot of the responses that we're having, things like suggesting taxes or reformulation of foods, those are all important, but they're kind of missing the point that you really need to address as well these big structural factors that are influencing the composition of the food supply. So there's only so much you can do downstream. You also need to tackle the problems with some upstream solutions. And that's where agricultural policy comes in. Okay, so, and can you tell us then how the Common Agricultural Policy, or CAP, um, has uh, influenced the sugar sector, in particular in Europe? What What's the kind of shape of the market or what has it been? Yes. So the sugar regime is complicated, but it can be broken down into some simple ways. So the sugar regime has been one of the most protected regimes in CAP. It's the last major regime to get a reform. Um, 2006 was the first time. All these other areas of CAP have gotten reforms much before that. But to put it most simplistically, the sugar regime has four main components historically. Import tariffs minimum price guarantees, production quotas, and export subsidies. So when you break those down, import tariffs, those are what prevent cheaper sugar from being imported from outside Europe. So it's it's protecting European producers from outside competitors. And then you have minimum price guarantees and production quotas. Those work together and they ensure that European producers get paid a substantially higher price for their sugar um, up to a certain amount. So up to their quota amount. So then for all of the sugar that's produced outside of the quota, for the excess out-of-quota sugar, 
those used to get export subsidies and those pay producers to export their sugar to other countries. So that way, even though the world price is lower than the European price, it's still profitable for exporters, sorry, for producers to export because they get the difference in price funded to them by the EU. So then when you have all of those things working together, it makes sugar pretty profitable and it also um, encourages sugar production regardless of market signals. So then that policy led to overproduction of sugar. And this is the same as it did for almost every other commodity crop. Um, a lot of people will remember wine lakes and butter mountains um, in the 1980s in the European Union. And the same was true for sugar. There was an excess of sugar produced, which makes sense because you were um, encouraging all of this production of sugar and there was more to it than we needed, more of it than we needed. And then there's also one more piece of the sugar regime, and that's this production cap on high fructose corn syrup. In the EU, high fructose corn syrup is called isoglucose. So that name may not be familiar, but that's what it's called in EU legislation. Um, and there was a cap of high fructose corn syrup of 5% of all sugar production. So that means that in, in Europe, you didn't see big replacement of sugar with high fructose corn syrup, which happened in the US, for example. So those are all of the ways that over the last 50 years, uh, the sugar industry has been built up. Um, and it's resulted in five of the 10 largest sugar companies in the world being based in Europe, even though other countries are producing much more sugar than Europe is. Um, so you've really seen this kind of artificial growth that has been sustained. And it's one of the, again, one of the longest policies. So it wasn't until 2006, much after all the other policies had started to be reformed, that you even saw the first sugar reform. So you can really see how that can contribute to overconsumption of sugar and how any other downstream policies that one might introduce would would perhaps not have so much of an effect without addressing these these factors. Exactly. So given that other sectors were reformed long ago, why has it taken so much longer for the common agricultural policy to be reformed for sugar? There are a couple of different thoughts on that. But the one that I think, I think the real reason why is because um, it actually is a pretty self-sustaining policy. So because consumers are paying higher prices for sugars, they're kind of footing the bill. So the money didn't really come from Europe to fund this. Um, it didn't cost Europe a huge amount which was not the case for other sectors. In other sectors, Europe had to pay out a lot of money. and um, But for sugar, it in large part was funded by consumers. So the policy wasn't able to stay in place for much longer. And then there were, um, it actually, there were a couple of trade reasons and um, and others that brought the whole house of cards down. But but yeah, that's why I think um, it's it was enabled to stay on for so long. So it's almost working like a tax on sugar. Yeah, it's sort of a structural one, um, interestingly. Okay, so um, as you've said, that that aspect of CAP has started to be reformed and um, is due to be completed by, I think, 2017, as you point out in your article. That's right. And what changes might we see to the sugar sector then in the coming months as a result of those reforms? The changes have already started happening, and I think we will see them even more starkly in the in the coming months and in the coming couple of years. Um, the 2013 reforms are much more drastic than the 2006 reforms. These are going to get rid of the production quotas and the minimum price guarantee, and they're going to get rid of the production cap so for high fructose corn syrup. So that means that the price for sugar is going to drop, 
And if the price drops, then in order to maintain profits, companies are going to have to increase their production to compensate. So we're going to see, and we already have seen, sugar companies are going to start consolidating, so growing bigger, um, so that they can really streamline their production, make it more efficient. And then they're going to start producing more sugar so that they can keep their profits up. Then at the same time, now we won't have any restriction on the production of high fructose corn syrup. So it's likely that we'll see that increase substantially, especially because um, the places in Europe that produce the components to create high fructose corn syrup, which doesn't just have to come from corn, it can come from wheat, it can come from a number of products. Um, those grow in different places than sugar beet, which is what um, European sugar is derived from. Um, those grow in two very different climates, two very different places. So you're going to see other countries starting to enter this now that they can start producing high fructose corn syrup or grains to produce high fructose corn syrup. So as a result, we're going to see companies growing bigger, making more sugar, and you're going to see high fructose corn syrup production starting to actually become a player in the European market. So the landscape is going to change in a big way, potentially. Okay. Now, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you just to talk us through it anyway. Um, okay. What effect do you think these changes will have on the consumption of sugar? So I think that there, and we think in this article and in our research, that there's a potential for that to increase sugar consumption. But it's important to know why we think so. Um, it's not just that we think, oh, price of sugar will go down, so people will buy more. It's not that simple. Um, and in fact, it's, yeah, it's quite a bit more nuanced than that. So we think that when sugar becomes um, cheaper to processors and to food manufacturers, then it becomes a much more stable investment for them. They can, um, they can reliably know that they can invest in sugar as a cheap additive to their foods. And sugar makes food, it gives it a lot more density, it makes it a lot bigger for a very cheap price. So we think that we may start to see sugar being added to more foods, especially when you take into account that high fructose corn syrup doesn't just have sweetness, um, it also has a number of other advantageous properties. It increases flavor, it adds stability, it adds more freshness, um, it improves the texture of foods, it makes it easier to pour. So there's all of these added benefits, um, benefits in quotes, of course, depending on what you're going for of high fructose corn syrup. So you really could start to see that being added to a much broader range of foods in Europe. Um, you could also see more sugar in the foods that already have sugar in them, just as an easy way to, to bulk up those foods as a bulking agent. And then um, also of a big concern is that this will make it a lot easier and a lot cheaper for food manufacturers in the UK and in Europe to export their products to the rest of the world. So a result of this policy could also be that we start exporting our Western diets even more than we already are and in a cheaper way so that people around the world, especially in emerging economies and developing countries, may start having the even biggest effects. They may start um, increasing their sugar and their processed food intake even more. Right. Um, and then you also outlined concerns that these policy changes will contribute to health inequalities as well. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And um, this is here's how the logic goes on that. So there's already a socioeconomic gradient in consumption of sugars, um, meaning that there is a differential according to socioeconomic status in how much sugar you consume and in how many sugar sweetened beverages you consume. And at the same time, um, those foods that are high in sugar, including sugar sweetened beverages, 
are also the cheapest foods. And when you start to look at which foods, and, and here we're sort of speculating a bit, but, um, but the logic seems to make sense to us. When you start to think, what foods are manufacturers going to add more sugars to? Well, it's probably not the foods that are marketed based on health, which are the more expensive foods. It's probably going to be the cheaper foods that already contain some sugar. Um, those are probably going to be the ones where people are buying them because they're cheap and they're tasty. Those are probably going to get more sugar added to them if foods, if the if companies start changing the formulations of their products. And so if those lower socioeconomic statuses are consuming those foods, then it could be that this reform, if it does change the composition of them, will impact on the lower socioeconomic statuses more so than the higher ones. So you may see a disproportionate effect on this, um, and sugar consumption might not go up across the board. It might be very much socioeconomically tied. Hmm. Okay. Um, can we talk a bit more about high fructose corn syrup or isoglucose, as you said it was called he- here in Europe? Mm-hmm. Um High fructose corn syrup has been widely used in the US for a much longer period of time because restraints on its use were removed in 1987. And you say in the article that that serves as a sort of cautionary tale for those of us in Europe. Um, Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about that. Um, What's the concern with high fructose corn syrup and what lessons are there for those of us in Europe? Yes, absolutely. So I believe high fructose corn syrup um, was allowed into the US food supply in 1983 there's some really interesting um, data when you actually start to look at how that played out in the U.S. Um, if you look at the ensuing 30 years, and we have a figure on this in the article, the price of soda or of sugar-sweetened beverages in the U.S. actually dropped significantly compared to the price of food. Now, over the same or somewhat similar time period in the U.K., the price of sugar-sweetened beverages actually increased relative to the price of food. And the experts on this attribute that to the low price of high fructose corn syrup and its um, replacement of sugar in U.S. sodas. So it's an interesting story because as soon as you saw high fructose corn syrup introduced in the U.S., within a matter of a few years, um, the biggest producers started replacing sucrose with high fructose corn syrup, and then you saw these these really stark changes in price. Um, and it's not just, and it, it's actually probably tied to the fact that the high fructose corn syrup was added. So this is a cautionary tale to Europe because um, on the on the brink now of reducing this, of removing this production cap, it's unclear what the effects are going to be on um, the production and the addition of high fructose corn syrup into the food supply. Now, I'm not saying that Europe and the U.S. are the same because they're not. And there's very different factors at play in the U.S. There are different subsidies um, and there's a very different set of policies in place. Similar, but different. So I'm not saying that you'll see the same degree of effect. Not at all. Um, But I am saying that it's something that's worth thinking about because given all of these advantages of high fructose corn syrup and and given that um, it could be something that potentially increases the profitability of foods and most importantly of sugar sweetened beverages it's really something that Europe needs to be careful about in the next in the next few years going forward as we see how production and addition of high fructose corn syrup changes into foods okay from this and from what you've described um, earlier there are potentially huge health implications from these reforms um, have the potential health effects been considered as part of the proposals for the agricultural reforms they actually haven't. And it's really interesting because the European Commission 
has some very long and very well thought out documents um, outlining how this will change sugar production and sugar consumption. And you would think that a natural outgrowth of that sort of exercise and that sort of document from them might ring some bells about health, but um, but not at all. It's There really hasn't been any consideration of health um, as this policy in particular has been reformed. And now I'll bracket that by saying there have been mentions of health recently in CAP in other areas. So it's not as though CAP is all bad and it's moving in the right direction. But in terms of the sugar reform, even though we know that this is going to um, drop the price of sugar and increase production and probably increase consumption, there hasn't been a pause to think, hey, should we be integrating health objectives here? Uh, should we be mitigating these policies to try to figure out what the impact on health may be? Um, there really is a silo still between agricultural policy and health policy. Mm. So then what would your message be to policymakers taking this forward? Is there anything that we can do about it? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, um, agricultural policymakers and health policymakers really need to work together and break down the barriers between them. And this is true not only at the European level, but um, also very much at the member state level, because CAP is, yes, it's an, a European policy, but it's very flexible. It leaves a lot of discretion to member states in their implementation. So in the UK, for example, um, DEFRA and the Department of Health should really break down the barriers between them and work together so that when they are implementing CAP um, in the devolved nations, of course, because CAP is implemented at, in each country individually, um, they should be working together to think about how they can align agriculture with health and how they can integrate agriculture into health and health into agriculture. So that's one high level um, recommendation. And then another recommendation that we think is also very important is to actually try to track what are the impacts of these policies. So over the next few years, we'll really need to improve um, or increase and maintain our surveillance and our data collection and trying to track sugar consumption and seeing what the effects of these policies actually are over the next decade. And then going forward, it would be great also if we could have some health impact assessments of agricultural policies so that we could actually start to see what is the effect of these, what effect are these policies having and actually try to, to research that, which really hasn't been done very much, if at all, in the UK specifically. Okay. Well, hopefully as um, we have this growing awareness of how these things are all tied together, that will happen. Um, Dr. Emily Aguirre, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And that analysis paper, Liberalising Agricultural Policy for Sugar in Europe Risks Damaging Public Health, is now available on the bmj.com 